Good afternoon, church. <laughs> You're ready. <laughs> Please stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> Looked like our pastor was kind of timing me there. Um, we are worshiping. We're continuing in our worship. And I'd like to just stand and get lost in God's word. Amen. Amen. This afternoon, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Beloved, if you're following with me from the Pew Bible, it's on page 23. If you'd mind navigating there on your iPad and iPhones, that's where we're going to rest this afternoon. I am reading from the Christian Standard Version. Amen? Here is the Word of God. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon the invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So these servants went out on the road and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for the wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him in the outer darkness where there will be no weeping or gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but a few are chosen. This is God's word. Let's bow in prayer before the Lord. This is indeed your word, O God, so speak to us with power, with conviction, with grace. That, Lord, we might hear and respond to your word as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to give a title to this message and our study of this text just read, it would be from wedding feast to outer darkness. From wedding feast to outer darkness. We come this afternoon to the third of a series of parables in which Jesus confronts the people of his day with point-blank authority and judgment. This is a pivotal moment in the life and ministry, a decisive moment for the people of 
uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus and the people of his day? Would they receive him or reject him? Would they give him their life or put him to death? The same question comes to us. It comes to us this afternoon. What will we do with Jesus Christ? Will we receive Him or reject Him? At some point in our life, a decision needs to be made. And we dare not assume that we can put it off. As a church, we have in recent time been much affected by death and grief and it weighs heavily upon us and in our culture in time and the passing of a young superstar athlete Kobe Bryant and his daughter along with other young men women and children there is a cloud of death that hangs over us it is sobering it is weighty there is a moment of decision that it calls us to As we look at this text in front of us, the message and the point of this text is that we must respond rightly to Jesus. And if we reject God's repeated invitation, if we reject His repeated invitation into His love, Jesus says we will be banished into the darkness of everlasting sorrow and hardness of heart. If we reject God's repeated invitation into His love, we will be banished into the darkness of everlasting sorrow and hardness of heart. There there is a decision to be made. And if we make the wrong one, folks, My friends, if we make the wrong one, the consequences will be terrible. That's the message of this text. I realize that I am speaking here this afternoon to a crowd of people, the majority of which have already professed faith in Christ, the majority of which have already seen and sensed the peril that they were in spiritually when thinking about themselves as sinners in the presence and company and one day before the face of a holy God, I realize that the majority of us have already considered these issues and have made our choice. We are following Christ. But whether you have heard this a hundred times or this is the first time, It is still important for us to hear it. That if we reject God's repeated invitation into His love, we will be banished into the darkness of everlasting sorrow and hardness of heart. On occasion, I will stand up here and say freely and without reservation, that there are certain parts of Scripture that there is no joy in preaching. There are certain parts of God's Word that one takes no pleasure in. And this is one of those texts of Scripture. As it stands, it is one of the most sobering texts that you will find in God's Word. We need to make sure that we understand it carefully. 
and respond to it rightly. So, let's do this. Let's start with the plot of this parable. This is a parable. That means it's a story that Jesus told to illustrate one or two or three key spiritual truths. A parable is not to be pressed for every detail and to try to figure out what does every detail mean, but a parable is a story, it's an illustration to teach us one or two or three important truths. So let's track the plot of this parable and see what the Lord teaches us. The story begins, you're going to want your Bible open in front of you, the story begins with the main characters, God and His Son, who together rule the kingdom of heaven. Notice verses 1 and 2. Matthew 22, verses 1 and 2. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He is clearly talking here about the kingdom of heaven. And so the king of the kingdom of heaven is God who is giving a wedding feast for his son. This is a parable about God. This is a parable about who he is and what he is like and how we need to respond to him as our king. Now second, this God, the king, sends out his servants, which include all the prophets of old, then John the Baptist and his disciples, and now us, to proclaim an invitation to the Son's wedding reception. Look at verses 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. And so the servants go out and they proclaim this invitation only to have the invitation rejected. We read in verse He sent his servants to call those who were invited, but they would not come. It is clear in the context that Jesus has in mind here, first of all, the Jewish leaders and people of his day. This is clear from what we see just before. In chapter 21 and verse 45, we read, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him, that is, the crowds held him to be a prophet. And so, Jesus has them in mind when he is talking about these people who were invited to this wedding feast, but who rejected the invitation. Now, when the servants return to the king, he tells them to try again. This time, with descriptions of the abundant, delicious food that he has prepared. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The king wants the people to know that in his house of love, there are lavish joys and mercies to be had and to enjoy. He wants these people to know, he wants you to know, that if you respond rightly to his invitation, there is a luxury of grace for you to experience now and 
forevermore. But, look, the invited guests not only say no again, they also attack the king's servants. Look at verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now the offense of their actions is multi-layered here. It starts with just lame excuses, born out of complete indifference to the, to the king of all kings. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. They were just too busy. They were, just had too much on their minds, too much they wanted to do. You know, the king of glory has invited them to dinner, but now I've got to go plant some spinach, and I've got to go shear the sheep, and I've got to go plow some dirt. They wanted life and love on their own terms and by their own efforts. This is a profound, treasonous disrespect toward the king. They don't need the king. They don't want the king. They don't want anything to do with the king. But they don't stop there. They then turn hostile and violent, which, by the way, is the response eventually of everyone who rejects the king. At some point or other, hostility emerges. And when this happens, now that they have turned down his invitation twice, which I think, the fact that he invited them twice, I think in parable form is meant to suggest that the King of Heaven's invitation to us is not one and done. The King of Heaven invites us and then invites us again. And in the experience of our lives, it invites us over and over and over again. But when this happens and they reject his second invitation, the king's patience runs out. And he becomes indignant. And in verse 7 we read, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This is an act of judgment by the king who in righteous indignation judges those who reject him. It's interesting in this text, this little phrase, and burned their city. You may look at that and say, where does that come from? What's, the, what's the, the point of that? It probably is a divine prediction of something that was going to happen in Jerusalem just a few years later in 70 AD when the, town, the city was destroyed and the city was burned. And Jesus is saying, that day is coming. You reject me and this is what's going to happen. King and his love is determined. He, he wants to have guests at his son's wedding. And so he calls for more servants and gives them instructions to invite even more people. And so we read in verse 8, Then he, the king, said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. This is now a a wide open invitation. It's basically everybody's welcome. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king expands his invitation beyond the Jewish leaders and people of his day. And he issues this invitation to all they could find, wherever they could find them. One more indication, probably the 13th time out of 18 in the Gospel of Matthew, where the message comes through sometimes very clearly, sometimes very subtly, that God's invitation, God's Gospel, is not just for one person or one ethnicity. It is for everybody. And this time, the people come. And the reception hall is full might lead us to expect that this is a happy ever after story from here on out, but it's not. There is a further sin in judgment that happened next in verses 11 through 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Friends, it's, it's not enough to accept the invitation. You have to wear the right clothes. You have to wear the right clothes. It's a little unclear what exactly these right wedding garments are. But if you put together all the teaching of Jesus and His apostles, I think we can say this, that the right clothes, the right wedding garments, were not the filthy rags of their own moral efforts and their own good deeds. But the right clothes are the the robe of the righteousness of Christ. The the perfection of Christ. It's, It's that that He provides. When we come to faith in Him, He covers all our sin with His blood. And then He puts onto us a spotless white robe that is, that is blameless in His sight and acceptable to Him. That's the wedding garment that we all need. It's not enough just to, to be invited. It's not enough just to show up in church. It's not enough just to claim faith in Jesus. One must be sure that he or she is wearing the right garments. That he is wearing the righteousness of Christ. And when someone refuses to come, or when someone comes dressed only in his or her own rags of self-righteousness, severe judgment happens. And this is where I tremble to speak. I, I tremble to speak. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so essentially ends our story. If we, 
like the Jewish people and leaders of old, if we reject God's repeated invitation into his love, we will be banished into the darkness of everlasting sorrow and hardness of heart. That's what that last verse is talking about. If we reject the invitation of God into His love, into His grace, or if we come wearing nothing but our own rags, then we will be bound and cast into outer darkness. You hear this and you say, no, no. That's not the Jesus I want to believe in. You say, no, that's, that's the part of Christianity that I can't take. It's, it's this idea that God is just and holy and He punishes sin. But we do not have the freedom to make God in our image. We do not have the freedom to try to imagine God how we want Him to be. We must surrender to who God is and has revealed Himself to be. And He has revealed Himself as a holy judge who will call every single human being to account for his or her life. That's who He is. He's a just God. He's a holy God. And as such, He must punish sin. He must deal with sin as it deserves. You say, well, that must be something that's been added to Christianity. That must be something that came out of the medieval age. That must be something that came out of primitive background. No, this, this came from Jesus. This week I went back in my Bible, I read from Matthew 1 all the way through to the end to count up how many times Jesus preaches judgment and wrath and punishment for sin. And in 28 chapters, there are at least 35 times. In chapter 3, it says He will gather up the chaff of human wickedness and burn it in unquenchable fire. In chapter 5, He says that anger and name-calling are liable to hell fire. He says it is better to lose your eye or your hands or your feet than to commit sins that lead to hell in chapter 5 and 18. He says that we will be judged by the standard we use to judge others in chapter 7 in verse 1. He says that the way is wide that leads to destruction, chapter 7. He says that we are all like trees and if we do not bear good fruit, we will be cut down and thrown into the fire, chapter 7. He says that if even, even if we prophesy and do miracles but are workers of lawlessness, He will say He never knew us and will banish us from His presence, chapter 7. He says that if we are foolish people who build our lives on the sand of our own ideas, ideas and agendas and not on the rock of His Word. When the storm of judgment comes, great will be the fall of our lives. Chapter 7. He says that those who do not believe 
will be thrown into outer darkness, into that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 8, he says that judgment will be less tolerable. That is, it will be more intolerable for those who have heard much truth and rejected it. He says that if we deny Him, He will deny us and turn us away. He says that if we try to keep our life, we are going to lose that life on that day. He says that judgment will include the destruction, the unending ruin of both soul and body. He says that if we do not forgive others, He will not forgive us, either in this age or in the age to come. He says that there will be a complete review of every single word we have ever spoken. And we will give an account for them all and be judged accordingly. Chapter 12. He says that at the end of the age, He will send His angels to gather all lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 13. He says that again in chapter 13. He says in chapter 16 that if we try to preserve our souls, we will forfeit them. He says in chapter 16 that we will be judged for all the things we have done. He says in chapter 18 that it is better to be bound and drowned than to face the judgment owed for causing others to sin. He says in chapter 18 that we have a debt of sin that is so incalculable it cannot be measured, but we will not get out of judgment day prison until we paid the last penny. He says that He will be like a heavy stone on that day, crushing those who reject His truth. Chapter 21, He says that sinners will be bound in hand and foot and thrown into outer darkness. He says that great tribulation is coming. Chapter 24, He says that when He returns, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be snuffed, the stars will be felled, the powers of heaven will be shaken, and all the earth shall mourn. Chapter 24. And he says to those in chapter 25 who do not feed the hungry and visit the sick or the imprisoned or welcome the stranger, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the place prepared for Satan and his demons, into eternal punishment. Think with me for a moment or two about the phrase, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is based on that that I have said that there would be great sorrow and everlasting hardness of heart. The weeping part of that phrase that we see in Matthew 22 and verse 13 and several other places in Matthew's Gospel speaks obviously of sadness and sorrow and pain. This place will be a place of unending sorrow and sadness. But it's the gnashing of teeth part of this that speaks, beloved, of a hardness of heart. This, this phrase, to gnash the teeth, is not a phrase describing sorrow or pain in Scripture, but describing anger and hostility. 
It's used that way in Psalm 112, in Lamentations 2, in Acts 7. Those of you who know the story of the first Christian convert, Stephen, when he preaches the Gospel and and he points the finger of accusation at the people of his day and says they must repent. The text says that they gnashed their teeth in response to him. They were enraged and gnashed their teeth. They ground their teeth at him. This phrase speaks of angry defiance. Angry in the face of judgment. Do you remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh who was judged in Egypt over and over again and he hardened his heart. And the more judgment came from God, the angrier he got at God. And the judgment did not bring about change. The judgment did not bring about a new heart. The judgment brought only increased rage. We read in the book of Revelation when God pours out seven bowls of wrath on human beings. This is the response in Revelation 16 and verse 11. Looking into the future is a season of tremendous suffering and sorrow and wrath and judgment comes over the earth. The prediction is that the people will gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sorrows and they will not repent of their deeds. What this means... This is one of the most sobering truths that I can conceive of. What this means is that those who reject Christ here and now will reject Christ hereafter and forever. Having made their choice in this life, they will harden themselves forever in a state of opposition to God, which is one reason, I believe, why Jesus says in Matthew 25, these will go away into eternal punishment. People who stand before God on judgment day in the full realization of their doom are not going to be saying so much, please Lord, no. They're going to be saying, Lord, how dare you? How dare you? They're like, like a rebellious teenager who may be saddened by discipline he or she receives, but usually or very often are more angered than saddened. Because discipline and pain and suffering and judgment don't change the heart in those that refuse the truth. In those that refuse the truth, these just produce Hardness. And so the eternal punishment is, in that sense, going to be self inflicted. Do not turn down this invitation. Do not turn Jesus away. The King of Heaven says to you and me, Come. Come. You say, well, what's with all these warnings and these threats? You need to understand that the warnings and the threats are expressions of the mercy of God. God is still inviting you. God, God is still saying, come. 
What you need to fear is the day when you don't hear that come anymore. Come, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Be one of those that are, that are out in the highways and the byways. Those that are, remember in the parable, they're, they're out there and Jesus says, after two failed invitations, he says, now go find, go find people. Go find people. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what they're like. Tell them to come. Because I've got a, calves that are ro- roasted or whatever to perfection, medium rare. You know. I've, I've, got, I've got beef. <laughs> I've got delicious food. Incredible mercy. Never-ending joys. Come. 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 And if you're, if you're here this afternoon and you're saying, I, I, no, I, I cannot believe God is like that, that God would punish people, that, that God would do that kind of thing. This, this, the idea that God would punish sin may seem to you to be a scandal, Can I suggest to you that you've got the wrong scandal? The scandal is not that God punishes sin. That makes sense. A just king must punish wrong or he ceases to be just. You know what the scandal is? That God forgives sin. That's the hard part to understand. How is it that a just God can offer mercy and forgiveness to guilty people. That's the mystery. Because if he offers mercy to the guilty, well, just think about it when that type of thing happens in our world. When people we think are guilty go free, what happens to us? We, get, we know there's a scandal that's happened. Well, God is saying... The guilty can go free. You can come and you say, well, how how does a just God offer mercy to the guilty without violating His justice? That's, That's the issue. That is the big question. The big issue, the big obstacle of the Christian faith is not God punishes sin. The big challenge and scandal of the Christian faith is God forgives sin. And you've got to find out, how does he do that in a just way? You want to know the answer? Many of you do. Many of you already know the answer, but I'll tell you. The answer is that he, in his son, Jesus Christ, volunteered, volunteered to come here to earth and to take our sins and our guilt upon his shoulders and to carry them all the way to the cross, that He would bear the punishment for us in our place so that we would not have to be punished so that God could be just in punishing sin and in forgiving sinners. That's the Christian Gospel. And that's the point Jesus is getting at. Remember here, yes, this is a sober warning. This is is a terrifying warning to those who stubbornly reject Him. But the point of this warning is to let us know there's still time. 
And remember, just a few days later, just a few days later, Jesus is carrying that cross of Calvary. And he, in that act of crucifixion, in that voluntary surrender of his life, the pouring out of his blood for us, as the wrath of God was coming down to consume us, Jesus stepped in the way. And he absorbed it into his own person, into his own body, into his own spirit on the cross, so that you and I would never have to face that. In, in reality, Jesus experienced the equivalent of eternal, infinite suffering on the cross. Weeping, grief, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? He said that so that you and I wouldn't have to say that. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. He was rejected that we might be received. He was treated as guilty so that we could be treated as innocent. That's the gospel. So if you're not a believer, don't stumble over the justice part of this. It's only right that God should punish sin. He wouldn't be a very good person if he didn't. Don't stumble over that. If you're going to stumble, wrestle, wrestle with this. How did that just God manage to forgive sin? And don't stumble over that. Embrace it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and say, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Thank you, Jesus. If you're a believer, um, this parable tells us why we must proclaim the gospel. This parable tells us why we're doing the Proclaim series in our community groups. We are equipping and training so that we know how to share this message with others. We are the servants of the King whose job it is to go out in the highways and the byways and invite people into the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so may we this week, fellow believers, give ourselves to this holy, serious, and wonderful task. Let's make sure this week to tell other people that the king of justice is a king of mercy. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never believed, right now is the right time to believe. You know you're a sinner. I don't have to tell you that. If you don't think you're a sinner, you haven't looked in the mirror recently. You know you're a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve God's judgment and wrath. I know I don't deserve heaven. You know that. Admit it. Acknowledge it. Own it. Confess it. And then go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you're not. I'm guilty, but you took that guilt on yourself. I believe. Save me, Lord Jesus. Save me, Lord Jesus. And you know what? He will. Right here, right now, right where you sit. Let's bow our heads.
Lord Jesus, I don't know the hearts of each one sitting here today. Father, I believe there are good reasons to think that here in this congregation, there are many who have already trusted in Jesus, but that there are also some who are hardening their hearts. Would you please, by your Holy Spirit, soften hearts, give new life to hearts that are hard and dead in sin. Give a spirit of sorrow over sin, a spirit that recognizes the need for forgiveness and give faith, faith that each one will lift their eyes and their hearts to the cross and they will see Jesus to be beautiful and wonderful and glorious and good and will recognize that he died for them and rose again and is the king's son even now. Oh Lord, bring to faith those whose hearts have been hardened. And Father, we will sing and celebrate the joy of our salvation throughout our lives and throughout eternity. To you be glory, to you be praise. Come and save. In Jesus' name, amen.